Good day, dear listeners. Steve Breda here from the Management Blueprint Podcast. And my guest today is Ian Schnur, the Executive Director at the Financial Modeling Institute, or FMI, and the President and Founder at the Markey Group, a leading financial modeling training, consulting, and accreditation provider for finance's most important decision-making tool, the spreadsheet-based financial model. So Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So if this recording happened 20 years ago, I would be extraordinarily excited because I loved, at the time I was doing a lot of financial modeling and I was very into it. I'm not as into it today, but I'm still excited about having you on the show and kind of bringing me up to date with what's happening in the financial modeling world. Yeah, sure. So tell me, how does one become a financial modeling entrepreneur? How did you get here? Yeah, it's a great question. I would describe myself as an accidental entrepreneur, as I'm sure is the case for a lot of entrepreneurs is he didn't grow up and at five years old say, I want to become an entrepreneur. I don't know that many people do. I thought I was going to adopt a very corporate, based on my background and my personality, I thought I would be a corporate person for my whole career, but I was always very interested in paying attention to what I was thinking and listening and being adaptive to change. So I started my career as an investment banker. As you mentioned, I spent six years in banking. At the time, all banks trained all their own people. So every year, a new cohort would come in, a bunch of new new juniors would come in, and they would call people that were a little older like me to train them. And every year, they'd say, hey, Ian, the new guys are coming. We need you to train them. And I'd say, okay. So I'd be working very hard. And then for a couple of weeks in the summer, I would be teaching all the new hires that had joined us. And then people always ask me, how did you decide to leave banking? Well, I actually didn't. That was an easy decision. That decision was made for me. It was just, I always tell people that if you stick around in banking long enough, someone's going to make that decision for you at some point. It was just after 9-11, I was working at Citibank. There were cuts every week. They were cutting offices, cutting groups, cutting people. And our, our team got cut towards the end of 2001. So the decision was not, should I leave? The decision was what to do next. And I had a couple of opportunities to join other banks right away, but it didn't feel right. And I'm really glad I listened to myself. I didn't feel ready to jump back into another banking role. And I paid attention to what my body and my mind were saying. I thought about it and I thought about what could I do and what did I like to do? I always loved teaching. That's how I got through university. I tried to tutor people. I like teaching and I like modeling. And I thought maybe I could try offering up the service to run training and modeling training and even some modeling consulting. So I did that. And I thought I'll do it for three months, six months. I'll take just take a break from corporate life. I'll take a break for six months and then I'll go back. Well, it's been 20 years. I haven't gone back yet, but such is life. So that's, it was in a circuitous way. That's how it happened. So fascinating to hear that because I kind of was a very similar situation. I was at ABN Emerald Bank, which was one of the competitors of Citibank at the time. I think I got, got the X about a year later than you did, 2002, September 6th, I think it was. And I, I relished the opportunity to actually get out and do something else and do my own thing. So anyway, you decided to teach people and to stay with financial modeling and get into it. And what I'm really curious about is how did you turn it into a business? So it's one thing to do some modeling on the side and yeah. get some clients and teach people, but they're actually making it, turning it into a business and growing it and make it a scalable business. It's a much harder proposition. So what happened then? Yeah, no, I appreciate you recognizing that because you're right. Like a lot of 
teachers and trainers. You know, when I started doing this 20 years ago, I was a solopreneur. I like to say it. I was my own, it was a one man operation. And then eventually I, after a few years, I hired an associate to help me with administration and logistics. So it was me and her working together, but it was essentially still a solopreneur. And it's a great question. Probably the most difficult decision in 20 years, probably the most difficult decision that I ever made and the most difficult change to ever make was to go from one primary person at the firm, me, to another one. And in fact, I ended up bringing two people in at the same time, two partners. So we went from one to three. Honestly, everything from that point on was much easier. But that first decision to try to take a risk and scale was daunting, difficult, and scary. Because when you're a solopreneur, you generate revenue, but you take all the cash as yours. All You generate cash, you, you make sales, and it all goes to you. Or you pay some bills, but mostly it's all your money. The decision to bring in partners meant suddenly I was going to be distributing a lot of cash to them, paying them as well. And I didn't know if it would be successful, but I decided that So for seven years, I was on my own teaching. What happened was we're all creatures of necessity. It got to the point where the demand was so high. I was teaching so much that I really had no choice. In the world of corporate training, people always use 100. 100 is a key number. That's often a number of days that a corporate trainer attempts to hit every year, right? It doesn't sound like much, but hitting a hundred days of training means you're on average two days a week running a course, running it, but there's a lot of travel and a lot of administration and a lot of business development. So it's a lot to hit a hundred training days a year. Well, I had a couple of days where I was doing 150, 160 days a year and I, it's very physical. I thought I was going to die. And so I really thought I had no choice. And the only way I could keep it going was to try and bring in some partners. And so I, I made the decision to try. That was the hardest part. And then when I brought them in, I found a couple of great guys. All my clients said, that's amazing, Ian. It's really great. You really need some more people to help and more people to run courses, but you're still going to run all of our courses forever, aren't you? And I said, oh, of course, I will 100% always be your training person because it's a very personal business. Through, through a very deliberate, gradual process, I would bring them with me and I would teach courses and they would come with me and they would help. And then they would teach a little bit until after a while, the students and the clients said, oh, you guys are all great. Who's coming next time? And then it, we knew we had permission and they didn't care. They just you wanted to make sure that they were getting the right quality. So that was it. And from there, it, it became much easier to start adding more people and to start scaling up. So it's a good segue to the next topic that I'd like to talk about, which is about attracting and keeping great employees. Right. For a professional service firm like you, it's highly critical. This is all right. you have, basically your people and your know-how. And if you can keep your people, then you can grow. And if you churn your people, then you basically are threading water. That's right. So what is your secret of retaining, attracting great people and then keeping them? It's an excellent question because as you just said it yourself, it is the lifeblood of any good service organization is the right people. Build, bringing them in, training them, recruiting them, treating them well. So there's a few things I have done. And I knew that would be difficult because there's not many people doing what we do. Put it in perspective. It takes us, when we bring in experienced people to become a new trainer with us, it takes one to two years for us to fully train them so that they're up to speed to teach any of our course. So it's a long investment period. So we don't want to see them coming and going. So these are some of the things I've done to try to... And by the way, our turnover has been extremely low. It has been very rare. We 
we've lost a few people over the years, over 20 years, very low turnover. And I think it's come down to a few things. I know these are buzzwords that people hear all the time. And then I'll share with you some of those buzzwords, but then I'll tell you one tactic, technique I've used that I think has also worked. The first couple things are treating people as equals for at least those that are those, well, everybody I treat as equals, but certainly those that are going to be fellow instructors, fellow principals, we, our title is principals. I treat them as equals to give people a long rope to, I definitely do try very hard not to micromanage. People have expectations around teaching courses at a certain date. They have to get themselves up to speed. So give people a long rope, treat people with respect. I've always been a big fan that you need to teach, you need to treat everybody extremely well. It doesn't matter if it's the person that collects the mail or the or the janitor. I try to speak to everyone and ask how they're doing and check in and find out how their family's doing. And people really appreciate, I think, being spoken to and included as though they're a key part of the team, like a family. And that has gone a long way to keeping people happy. So being respectful and being curious, asking people about themselves has really helped. A second thing is including a lot of humor. We like to joke around. We work very hard and we are we teach finance to prominent firms all over the world, but we don't like to get ahead of ourselves. We still like to have fun. We like to have a good time. We like to joke around, be real. Nobody likes big ego. There's no ego on our team. So we like to have fun and joke around, which is critical to our culture. And the third thing is for our partners, for the principals that are teaching, and I knew it would be so hard to replace them and it takes a long time to train them. One mechanism I've done, and I know you want to talk about this, is I decided early on that in order to keep them, and if they were going to be teaching and helping to grow the business, they had to be rewarded for that. And I made a decision early on that I would grant, give all of our partners equity. So they're not buying it. They are given. It's a very interesting type of equity, but they are granted it and given it to motivate them to help build and create value for the company. Okay. So we're going to get into this in a minute, but I really like the ideas that you shared about attracting and keeping people, you said, treat them as equals, at least the principles. Obviously, if you have juniors, they are not your equals, but you can still treat them with respect. Make sure you take care about them. You check in with them. You take an interest in their personal well-being is, I think, what you said. Yeah. Give people a long leash, so don't micromanage people. And I love the humor piece. This is something kind of, I find myself as well to lose maybe a little bit, lose attention on it, but it is really important to keep things loose. Don't take us too seriously, ourselves too seriously. Self-deprecating humor is a really good oil. And then finally, you said to give, to grant equity to partners, which is is pretty unique. Some people do it, but but it's definitely not. That's not an obvious thing, and it's not an easy thing. I did it myself. It it worked really well initially. Then during the financial crisis, it didn't work at all. But I don't want to get into it. And what I'm curious about is how you do it, and yeah. what is your special brand of of sure. equity grants, and how you then share the control over the business. For sure, and it's a great question. So as I mentioned, I believed early on that if I was going to bring in a lot of entrepreneurs are scared to reduce their own equity stake and they want to stay at hundred and they're afraid to dilute themselves below hundred. A very small number of them are able to achieve growth and it's, and they're able to, but in a lot of cases they can't. And I kind of said to myself, I would rather own 25% or whatever. I would rather own a small percent of a much bigger company than a hundred percent of a company 
that is that's not worth much. A hundred percent. Last I checked, hundred percent times zero is still zero. So <laughs> I thought that I'd be better off trying to own a smaller piece of a bigger pie. And so, but what have I done? What did I do to make sure that would work? A few mechanisms. First of all, I knew there was a chance that I could become at some point, I knew that I could potentially be diluted below 50%. And I had heard stories. I had heard stories of people who diluted themselves below 50 and then all the partners ganged up on them and kicked them out. So I put in place some mechanisms in our shareholder agreement that no matter what percentage I get to, I still have some veto rights over some pretty key critical decisions like an acquisition or raising equity or replacing me. So there are certain things that I still need. There are things I can't do all by myself, but they can't, the rest of the team move forward on certain things unless you know I'm along with it. And so that's a critical veto capability was important. The second thing is I wanted people to know that if they're being given equity, it's not forever. Meaning equity is in a pri- in a small private company. Equity is only worth something if one day you can sell it and somebody wants to buy it. And so if we're building a firm together and then one day we can sell it together, then everyone will benefit. But if you choose to leave, it's not like a public company where you're granted public shares and you got your stock as a reward for your work and you get that stock. If invested, you have it forever. It's not like that. We have to keep building and working every single day. So if someone leaves, basically their equity is lost. What happens is it flips into, so it doesn't disappear to zero because if it went to zero, that would negate any value that they had built. They might've been with us for 10 years and left. What the mechanism is, if someone leaves, their shares roll and flip into a class of preferred shares, a different class of shares, and they get frozen. So the value on the departure date is the highest that they would ever get. So if they get frozen, let's say at a thousand dollars and making up a number on the day they leave, they get frozen at a thousand in a separate class of shares. And then one day down the road, if we ever sell the company, it doesn't matter what they would have been worth on the sale date. The maximum they get is what we said they were worth on their departure date. And that is, that is what we've done because that means we can now issue more equity to new partners. I never wanted to be in a situation where a lot of senior partners left holding most of the equity and you had a few juniors owning a little bit of equity running the company wouldn't survive. So that was why I put in place that mechanism. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic because I've seen companies where there were two partners and one of them was generating all the business, had all the connections, the other one and wanted to grow the business. And the other one was kind of looking at it as a lifestyle business, didn't want to grow, didn't want to work as hard, didn't control the relationship. And in fact, if the passive partner wanted to sell their stake, it would have been worse, worse more than if the active partner would have wanted to sell their stake because anyone would have bought the passive stakes because there was a driver in the business left. Right, right. No one would have bought the stake. So it was totally uh, um, unfair that the one who did all the work had a useless equity stake. So definitely- And sometimes, you know what? Sometimes things like that happen, but it actually goes to show that in a small private company, Value is not nearly as liquid and transparent as it is in a public stock where there's a huge market of thousands of buyers and sellers. In a small company, the value can spike or collapse based on one or two people coming or going or one customer coming or going. And so for sure, I can see that in passive partner is getting a good deal, but he rode on the coattails of the active guy. And yeah, makes sense. 
Okay, so so let's talk about your business. Let's talk about financial modeling. Yeah, great. Spreadsheet. So why do you consider this one of the most important financial skills in the 21st century? Yeah, uh, right. Is it something that everyone should be able to build a spreadsheet model? Yeah. Well, it's a great question. In the world of business, and I say this all the time, financial modeling, as you just said, financial models and financial modeling, financial models have become the most important tools in the world of finance. And financial modeling has become one of, if not the most important skill for business professionals. And why is that? It's because financial models have become the most important decision-making tool in pretty much all of business. Every major decision that gets made these days in the world of finance, accounting, business, if done properly, is made on the back by referencing and using a financial model. So critical decisions used in big companies, should they take on more financing? Should they take on more debt? Should they make an acquisition? Should they divest part of their business? Should they embark on a joint venture, a partnership? Should they grow the company? Or any critical major decision about the business should be based off the insights and results from a financial model. And that's why I say that it's so critical. If you are working in a business environment, you either need to know how to build a model or just how to read one, to review one, to check one. You have to have juniors on your team that know how to do it because it's going to be used religiously in so many critical decisions. Yeah, so, but that's not necessarily an easy thing. And we did the financial modeling in my investment banking firm. Sometimes these models would be 30, 40 pages long you can still do a one page model but the real often the real intricacies could only be reflected in a more detailed model so so what is the difference between these two the kind of the simple model the detailed one and what is the illusion of accuracy that you yeah, sure. like to so do? let's back up so what is a model first of all when i talk about financial models using to make critical decisions what is it it's simply a spreadsheet and the way most people in the world of corporate finance are using the term financial modeling all we mean is you are building a forecast right all we're doing is building a forecast usually of a company but the forecast could also be of a division of a business line of a project we are building a forecast of a company's financial performance of their financial statements. So usually forecasts are five to 10 years. That's the most common length. It doesn't have to be. Some are shorter, some are longer, but all we're doing is building a forecast. We're forecasting the income statement, cash flow statement, balance sheet. We're forecasting all of their revenues, their operating costs, their debt, all the pieces, all the various elements, the numbers we are forecasting, and then rolling that into a integrated five-year forecast on the financial statements. That's it. So that's what we're doing. So then, so given that's what we're doing is building a forecast, and that's because we use the forecast financial statements to make these critical decisions. But what's never standard, what's never standard in a financial forecast is the level of detail that gets used. That comes down to the proficiency of the modeler himself or herself to decide what's the appropriate level of detail to be used in the spreadsheet. As an example, if I was modeling a company that had 300 employees, okay, think of your spreadsheet. Let's say I was modeling a company that three that had 300 employees and I was trying to forecast labor expenses for the full year. What would the labor expense be? 
I have multiple ways I could do that, but there are two extremes. The simplest way I could forecast labor expense is by looking at the total labor expense last year. Let's say it was $10 million. And I could say, let's assume that we're not going to grow much and that the labor expense will grow by 3% and it'll be 10.3 million. So I could have one line item then take labor expense last year and grow it by 3%. That's one extreme. The other extreme is if I have 300 people, I could have every single person at the company in their own row on the spreadsheet, right? I could list the CEO. Let's say the CEO is Steve. I could say Steve and then have Steve's salary in one row. And then the next row, I could have Ian. Let's say I'm the CFO at Ian and I have Ian's salary. And then I could list all 300 employees in 300 rows and their salary and their benefits. And I could forecast each person's salary into the future. And I would have 300 rows. So there's, So I could arrive at the total labor cost by doing it in one row, or 300. And and if you have 5,000 employees, it would be 5,000 rows. You get the idea. The goal of a good modeler is to say, what's the appropriate level of detail for me to make an optimal decision? Do I really need to have all 300 employees listed in the spreadsheet? Does that help? Does it make me make a better decision? Because if not, that's what I would refer to as an illusion of accuracy. Having 300 rows in the spreadsheet, just because you have the data, doesn't mean you're going to make a better decision. If those 300 rows add up to $10.3 million and I had the same number in one row, that doesn't mean I'm going to make a better... I actually might make more mistakes that way. But people often have excessive detail in spreadsheets, which leads to this illusion of accuracy because you got all this detail, but it doesn't mean it's any more insightful at giving you a better direction, a better answer. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And the more detail you have, the more risk of error you have. Totally. And with a financial model, it's a very risky business. I remember when we were doing it in my firm and when I delegated, finally, I let go of financial modeling and delegated to my colleagues. What I still kept doing for a while is looking at charts. So I asked them to, to make charts of all the, the financial statements. And then I was looking at any jumps in the charts so I can look at the details, understand and big picture. And then I kind of kept increasing the distance between the details and the and the uh, big picture. And eventually I said, okay, these guys got it. But the illusion of accuracy is real. And sometimes I was into this detailed modeling and these days... I just go to the whiteboard and says, okay, what is going to be our revenue? What's going to be our gross profit? And we talk about margins, sure. what's going to be our overhead. And doing a simple back of the envelope kind of calculation can be very powerful because people actually get it. Right. And then they start thinking about, okay, so it's there is a break-even point here. And That's what right. are the scalable expenses? What are the what is our overhead? And what do we do with the with these lines on the financial statements? Totally. So, so what I'd like to ask before we wrap up here. I'd like to ask you what has happened in the last 15 years since I've been out of modeling and been kind of huh. distant from it. What has happened that it is this kind of a static field other than Excel becoming more sophisticated? Sure. Are there things happening or it's pretty much the same as it was? Both. It's dynamic and somewhat static at the same time, which is nice. It's changing, but it's not changing so fast that you become a dinosaur, honestly. So you tell me, can you remember any public companies you looked at when you were a banker many years ago? Can you, are there any public companies that you remember looking at? Well, I, I was my my business was in Hungary, so we looked at Mall was one of the public companies. Mall, okay. yes, company yep. Aegis was a, a big pharmaceutical. There was OTP, sure. a big bank. It was a public. Um, is it still public? Well, OTP is and Mall is. I don't know about Aegis. So let me just put it in present. Let's say we were looking at Mall, or let's say we're looking at Exxon in the United States. Let's say we're looking at Exxon yeah. Mobil. 
if you looked at Exxon's financial statements last year, if you looked at their financial statements last year, or you looked at Mole's financial statements last year, and then you pulled up the financial statements from 20 years ago or 30 years ago, they're going to look almost exactly the same. There will be different disclosure. Disclosure rules have changed, of course. Now companies have provided more disclosure. But the financial statements themselves, would you agree? The way the income statement is laid out is the same. They still have revenues and operating costs and depreciation expense and interest. The balance sheet has the same line items on it. So part of why modeling, in modeling, we're forecasting a company's financial statements. The discipline of accounting has not changed that much. If you look at an SEC, pick Walmart. If you look at Walmart's financial statements, their, their 10K, their annual report last year or 20 years ago, looks the same. The SEC filing hasn't changed. And our job as modelers is to forecast based on looking at the most recent actuals. So because the accounting and the actuals haven't changed radically, the forecasting has not changed radically. Yes, now companies have to report operating leases on their balance sheet. And of course, there are some accounting changes, but not millions. There's a few changes. So in that way, modeling is not a whole lot different today because we're still starting with the historical financials and the rules around accounting are a little different, but not radically. The 10Ks look similar. Where has it changed? As you mentioned, technology has improved. Models can be much bigger these days because back in our days, when you and I were younger, you couldn't make your spreadsheet too many rows because then it would crash. It would be too big, yeah. right? Now, models can be huge. Spreadsheets back in our day used to have 65,000 rows, which is a lot, but not massive. Now, a spreadsheet has a million rows and it works faster. So there's a bunch of features and additional technological skills in Excel that allow us to have more flexibility, more capability, but it's incremental. I would not say it's earth-shatteringly different. It's incremental change. Visualization, putting visualization on top of models to, to build really beautiful graphs, charts, visualization outputs is newer. It's nice. But by and large, if you could model 20 years ago, it's not radically. You could still pick it up very quickly again today. Okay. That's very reassuring. So I'm glad I didn't lose all did my not. expertise yet. So you are in the business with the Financial Modeling Institute, obviously, to uh, to do certifications. So if people yes. want to become proficient in modeling or want to be an expert, you've got right. different certifications. Right. So what are the benefits of obtaining a certification? Yeah, well, yeah, it's a great question. So as we talked about, are, we are in a day and age... we. Given a bunch of the, I think that what happened is because of a bunch of the financial crises over the last 10, 15 years, there has become a heightened expectation around rigor, around the discipline of strong analyses. Nobody wants, no CEO, CEOs and CFOs, they do not want to be caught off guard by an analysis that's uncertain, that's not working well. Everyone is looking for higher quality analysis because they don't want to get in trouble which means they need people who can build these analysis and make sure they're right, make sure that they're not having filled with all sorts of errors and problems. So because organizations are looking for people who have strong modeling skills, the only way to prove it would be to have an independent accreditation that says you have excellent modeling skills. And before the FMI was around, there was no way. There was no way in the world to prove it. And today, the FMI is the only way to independently prove it. Yes, listen, there's a bunch of training firms and you can buy their courses and they'll give you a badge. 
those badges are always completion badges. There's nothing really rigorous. The FMI is the only organization where you have to sit a four-hour proctored exam and build a financial model from scratch with no resources, no internet. And if you can pass that, our graders grade it manually. If you can pass that, we can prove and validate to the whole world that you have excellent modeling skills and you can build a forecast of a company. That's our level one AFM program, the Advanced Financial Modeler. It's the only way to do it. So we need it. This is needed because employers are looking for it and this helps them know. Yeah. Well, I almost feel the urge to enroll in one of your courses, but then again, I don't really have time for that. But Anytime. You let me know. We'll get you in there anytime. I want to see you bolster your modeling skills again. So I was originally attracted to investment banking because I thought modeling was so fascinating and being able to value the company and look at the future cash flows and scan everything back. Look like magic. Huh. So anyway, so thank you for your information. Definitely, I recommend financial modeling. I, I still run my own really cash flow statement. So I see Great. nine months ahead in my own cash flow. I have no surprises unless I get an unexpected bill from an unexpected government institution. Huh. I'm pretty much know what I'm looking at. What I, right. If I'm going into the red, I know well in advance. I know that I have to work harder to make huh. sure things go back into black. So definitely recommend it. So if people would like to get certified or they would like to learn more about the services that FMI is providing and the market group is providing, or they want to talk to you, where should they go? Where can they find you guys? Great. That's a great question. I'm active on LinkedIn. Ian Schnoor, I-A-N and then S-C-H-N-O-R. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. I often try and put out, I've been putting out videos and a video series on on things like why your balance sheet doesn't balance. So you can check my LinkedIn page and look for videos that are free there. You can easily find me as well by email. You can find the Financial Modeling Institute. It's fminstitute.com. Again, fminstitute.com. Check out our programs. Our level one accreditation is what I described. It's the Advanced Financial Modeler, the AFM, the four-hour rigorous exam. I wouldn't even worry about that ones higher than that at this point. That's the first one. We also now have an early entry program called our Foundations Program, which might be appropriate for some people. It's much gentler. It does not prove you have strong modeling skills, but it shows that you're attaining an interest. You're building your skill set. It's called FMI Foundations. So these are all things you can find on our website. We have learning materials, dozens of videos, 12 hours of videos to really show people the way to build these modeling tools. And, and that's our focus is at the FMI, at the Marquee Group. That is a training business. We have a wide range of courses, some self-study, some live. It's themarqueegroup.com. And you're welcome to check those out. It's a tr- traditional training business. You can get a participation badge when you're done. We don't look to provide rigorous testing, but it's great content that if you're, you're welcome to check out. So yeah, that's how you can find me. And I hope that to be in touch with some of your listeners. Excellent. So thank you. Ian, so Ian Schnur, the executive director of the FMI Financial Modeling Institute, the founder and president of the market group. And if you'd like to get the transcript of this conversation, then visit mbppod.com, management blueprint pod, mbppod.com. You can find the show notes, you can find the transcripts of this and earlier episodes and future episodes. And if you'd like a custom business operating system for your business that will take it to the next level, to the top of the mountain, then check out my website, stevepreda.com. So Ian, thanks for coming on the show. It was excellent to walk down memory lane and talk a little bit about financial modeling. I hope our audience enjoyed it as much as I did. 
And uh, thanks, Steve. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and uh, look forward to being in touch. Thank you. 